All right, you can turn your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 verses 1 through 6 this morning. And the title of our message is Three Reasons to Praise God. There's, uh, your Bible is like mine. It says the fourfold hallelujah at the top of chapter 19, but obviously the person who did that doesn't teach every week. You have to have three points, not four. So <laughs> we broke it down into three reasons to praise God this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. We're making progress. I've, I've added it up. Now I don't remember what I came up with, but it's probably only like three or four more months in Revelation and we'll be, we'll be done. Uh, but we <clears throat> obviously <clears throat> have spent quite a bit of time in this wonderful book and it's actually gone a bit faster than what I originally was thinking it was going to be. But this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ it's not the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the tribulation or the revelation of anything other than the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is going to become more and more apparent as we move through these final chapters of the book as it kind of shifts focus away from all of those events of the tribulation and the city of Babylon that we've spent so much time on these last few weeks. <clears throat> and begins to focus on the culmination of the tribulation period and the coming of the coming again of Jesus Christ this mo- momentous event that as we talked about this morning in Sunday school the book of Romans says that even the creation itself is groaning for Christ to come again and establish his kingdom upon this earth. And that this is this is what we're studying Revelation for, what we're getting to now. This incredible event that will take place one day when Christ comes again to establish his kingdom on this earth. But in the meantime, we still find ourselves in this section, the biggest section of the book, the things which will take place after these things. And we are coming to the end of the tribulation period getting to the coming again of Christ. And and in verses 1 through 10, we will see this great praising of God that takes place in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And over the last uh, several weeks, we have been studying Revelation 17 and 18, which leads up to, of course, Christ's coming again which is the destruction of the city of Babylon. So we spent a lot of time uh, talking about this, and we spent a lot of time talking about literal hermeneutics or a literal interpretation of the Bible, considering the audience and the, the context and all of these things, and kind of came to the conclusion that there's really no reason to think that Babylon is anything other than then Babylon, yes, there's figurative language here, but it never says that this city is like Babylon or anything like that. It describes it as a, as a literal city. And so we, we spent some time in those kinds of areas. We saw that, that, that 
according to this passage, the world is headed towards a one-world government. Uh, I don't think you have to have a political science degree to see that is definitely the trend of the world uh, that, that, that we every time there's some kind of um, world crisis, like a pandemic or Russia invading Ukraine, the, the world runs to, oh, we need a system. We need some kind of a system where we can handle this on a worldwide scale and, and I'll be the leader. Somebody will inevitably stand up and say. So uh, the, the world and current events seem to be pointing towards exactly what the Bible is describing here in Revelation, a one world system of government that according to Revelation 17 and 18 will be headquartered in the city of Babylon, but it's going to be destroyed because of its immorality and the, the things that it will perpetuate against believers in Christ, God is going to deal with this city. And we saw that, in fact, in Revelation 17 and 18, that he's actually going to deal with it through people who are a part of it. We saw that the ten kings are going to turn on the, nation, on the city of Babylon, and they will be God's instrument in destroying this city. Revelation 18, if you'll remember, is largely about the, the great lament that takes place over the city of Babylon by the various stratas of society. We saw that, that they're not really uh, lamenting over their sin and realizing, oh, wow, we were certainly on the wrong path, weren't we? Uh, we're sorry, God. No, that never takes place. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of that. They're kind of hardened in their uh, difference of opinion that they have with God and the world and how things ought to operate, and they're just simply lamenting over the consequences of their sin, not the sin itself. And so we saw that as a model to not follow. A lot of times uh, you may have a boss in life or a teacher in school or somebody that you're associated with that is just not a great person. Uh, they're, not, they're not a great leader. They do things wrong. Uh, they mistreat you. They mistreat your coworkers or your fellow students or your the teammates on a team or something like this. And we just can kind of think, oh, that guy is such a jerk. Uh, and he's a horrible person or whatever. Instead of seeing, using it as an example of what not to do. You know, you can, we ought to be growing in our maturity as people, uh, let alone as Christians, whatever our circumstances are. So we can learn from everyone, including the, the, the people like uh, Andrew Jackson, who was uh, Battle of New Orleans mentioned. That was largely done by him and his incredible uh, drive, ingenuity, uh, military intelligence, and he created a system of defense that defeated the strongest nation of the world in an unprecedented way. So there's uh, a good example to follow. There are also good examples to not follow. Just put that in your toolbox for later on in life. Remember to not do those things. Do the good things, don't do the bad things. Uh, anyway, end of that rabbit trail. 
back to three reasons to praise God. In this passage, verses 1 through 6, we see that, that the, the angels of heaven essentially are praising God for essentially three reasons. And, and those three reasons are that God is just, He is worthy, and He reigns forever. And those are three wonderful reasons for us to remember to praise God as well. As we go about our lives, as we realize that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a wonderful book to study, not so that we know what the future is going to be, but because it tells us so much about life and so much about the Bible. And that's why it says in Revelation 1-3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Every time that the second coming is mentioned or that the end times are mentioned in the Bible, it is a call to holiness for God's people. We aren't just learning these things so that we know everything about politics and and what's going on in the world. No, we're learning these things to be reminded of the fact that the day is drawing nearer and nearer with each tick of the clock when you and I will need to give an account to the Lord for how we've lived our lives. And so that's why, that's why we study these things. Revelation 9, 1 through 6, I won't take the time to uh, read it again since we read it in our scripture reading. But it is this great praise that is being given for God for essentially three reasons, beginning with He is just. Revelation 9, 1 through 3. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever. Begins with that term, Hallelujah, there. And that, that is essentially just a transliteration of the Hebrew term that is in a Greek and English, and probably every language of the world at any rate. that It, it is based on uh, the Hebrew term halal, which means to praise. And then it's added on Yah, which is kind of short for Yahweh. So it literally means praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. And uh we are here admonished to appraise the Lord because salvation, glory, and power belong to Him. And so wrapped up in that entire system of salvation, He deserves glory because of salvation. He's saving us in spite of ourselves. He is saving us which is a demonstration of his incredible power to do that. And this entire system is one that is based on God's perfect justice. God's salvation is given through a perfectly 
just system. There is not a, a single aspect of God's salvation that isn't just, which ought to cause us to praise Him. And probably the number one reason why God's salvation is perfectly just is that no one can possibly earn it. There is not a hint of favoritism in God's system of justice. We get exactly what we deserve as people, whoever you are. Uh, our, our works cannot possibly uh, cancel out our sin. So if we're relying upon our works, uh, the sin is still there. You're trying to pay for something uh, that with the wrong uh, currency, if you will. It's like you show up at uh, Beaky's to buy a bag of apples and you're trying to pay for it with a bottle of water and the cashier is just looking at you like, uh, no, that's not acceptable. You're trying to pay for something with the wrong thing. So if you're trying to earn your salvation, you're attempting exactly the same thing. You're trying to pay God with the wrong currency. That is completely unacceptable to him. Why? Because he's just. He's perfectly just. And so the, <laughs> according to the scriptures, there is only one currency that allows you to have salvation, and that is the currency of faith. We must put our trust, our faith, in what God has already done for us in order to receive the product of salvation. Jesus Christ, as we emphasize over and over, is the one who paid for your sins on the cross. He did the work, the one work, the only work that could be done to pay for your sins, to uh, provide a covering for your sins, if, as it were. And the only covering for your sins is the shed blood of the one and only eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you acquire salvation by putting your trust in that work. If you're trying to earn it with your own works, you're showing up to God and saying, oh, what Jesus did on the cross is, is nice, maybe, uh, that, that's good, but I'm going to offer my works to you instead of what Christ did. And that puts you into a system that is unjust. That puts you into a system that is, that is subjective. Uh, have I done enough? Is the thing that I'm doing good enough for God to pay for my sins? All of those things are subjective. Uh, in our, you know, you just can't quite know for sure in, in that sort of a system. In God's perfectly just system, it is absolutely objective. There is a, a right and a wrong. It is black and white. I love black and white myself. I love things to be clear cut. And maybe I make things too clear cut at, at some points that uh, don't have to do with the scriptures anyway. And that's my own, my own fault. 
But nevertheless, salvation is something that is black and white. It, there is right and there is wrong. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. I love that. That's black and white. It is clear cut. There are not many paths to God. There is one path to God, and it is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. That's what makes salvation perfectly just, perfectly objective. We can know for certain whether or not we are going to spend eternity with God based on the fact of whether or not we have trusted in Christ and his uh, work on the cross for us. It is concrete, based fully and completely on what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It's not about uh, what we can do. It is about what Jesus did. And so if we just lower ourselves in our own uh, eyes and accept what Christ did, he gives us salvation. Through his power, his glory, he gives us his eternal life through trusting in him. And that is certainly worthy of praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He offers salvation to us, having done all of the work for us. Notice that these, uh, this great multitude goes on to say, verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This is, again, just a reminder that the, the book of Revelation is really the reason why it's a blessing is because it is a study of the entirety of the Bible. We, we have, in our course of our study, we've spent uh, time in uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. We've spent time in the writings like Psalms. Uh, Daniel is a, a myriad of time we've spent studying Daniel. We've studied uh, the prophets. Every section of the Hebrew Bible we have spent time studying in our look at the book of Revelation. That's what makes it such an incredible blessing. And one of the the truths that we have come to is just what is stated here. God's judgments are true and righteous. This idea of truth is something that is, that is, I guess I hesitate to even say that it's under assault anymore. It seems like the battles, it's over. (laughs) Uh, Truth is no more in our society. Even among so-called conservatives, we have uh, issues of of truth. What is truth? Even Pilate asked that question. That's not a new question. Pilate asked that question of Jesus 2,000 years ago when Jesus told him about the truth. Wow, what is truth? Wow, Pilate, (laughs) are you a 21st century American or are you from 2,000 years ago? What is truth? Truth is in agreement with reality. Truth is the reality of the situation. So there is no such thing as your truth or my truth. 
if, if you're using that kind of language, you're redefining the word truth because truth is truth, regardless of me, my opinion, your opinion, your next door neighbor's opinion. Opinion plays no role in truth. Truth is reality. And God's judgments are true. They are the reality. And so if we're not in agreement with God's judgments about this, that, or the other thing, then we're not living in God's reality because that is the fact of the matter. And his judgments are not only reality, they are righteous. They are without sin. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So not only are his judgments reality, but they are, they are perfect. They are without error. And so again, if we find ourselves in disagreement with God and disagreement with what his word says, The problem isn't with God or his word. The problem is with us. So we need to fix that situation as believers if we find ourselves there. It doesn't mean that we necessarily understand every single word or every single uh, instance that we find in the Bible. Why did this happen or why did that happen? It doesn't mean that we have to have it all figured out. But what it does mean is that we have to... uh, be willing to align ourselves with it and understand that, well, I don't understand this particular passage and the problem is with me, not with God and his word. So I need to investigate more to try to figure out this situation. We don't blame God for things that we don't understand. We ought to be blaming ourselves for things that we don't understand because his judgments are true and righteous. They are reality and they are without sin. And so, when God punishes people, like is mentioned here, he has judged the great harlot, in verse 2, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his uh, bondservants on her. That means that his judgments are just. If his judgments are in agreement with reality, and they are by definition because God is truth and his judgments are righteous, they are without sin, that means they are perfectly just. He has, so when he judges the great harlot Babylon in the future, that's a just punishment that is upon her because she is immoral And she's corrupting the earth with her immorality. She's playing a role in the the corruption of the very creation in which we live, let alone the lives of people. And this brings us back to the fifth seal of Revelation. This is when this prayer of the believers is going to be answered at the end of the tribulation Period. So all the way back in the beginning of that seven-year period, if you'll remember, the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, you're going to have to wait about 13 chapters uh, worth, people who have been slain, because it is avenged here, according to Revelation 19.2. Also, in Revelation 6, there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So uh, you uh, fifth seal martyrs are kind of the lucky ones. You were taken out of this situation in the beginning. There's going to be a multitude more who are going to have to live through a part of this, but they're also going to be killed. Notice that they're given white robes. White robes are mentioned in verse 8 of Revelation 19 that we won't get to today. It was, But it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So these people were faithful in their walk with the Lord, their devotion to the Lord under extreme circumstances, and they're given these white robes that are going to be mentioned again when Christ comes again to the earth. Again, a call to holy living based on what is going to take place in the future. So people make the mistake, uh, Christians make the mistake of saying, oh, we don't want to study prophecy because you know, it just causes division and there, because there's disagreement about how these events are going to play out. And after all, I'm more concerned about uh, my daily life today than I am that what's going to happen in the future. Well, as I mentioned earlier, that's interesting because uh, the study of prophecy is always, always, always connected to godly living. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets were, uh, yes, a lot of them told the, about future events, but that isn't the focus of even the Old Testament prophets. It's not the future. It's today. Especially when you look at books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the overwhelming portion of their writing is calls to holiness for the Israelite people. Why? They're living in, in disobedience to the Lord and these future punishments are going to come upon you because you're living in rebellion today. So fix that. And maybe God will bless you in the future with not punishing you. But in the meantime, if you continue on this path, you're going to be punished. Always, always, always a call to holy living. Same thing here in Revelation 6. These people are... Uh, were faithful to the word of God and their testimony to it. These people were killed because of the word of God, it says. It doesn't even say because they were uh, standing on the street corner and preaching all the time and the people just got fed up with it and slit their throats. <laughs> no, it says they died because of the word of God, because they were believers and they knew what the Bible teaches. Hmm. Again, 
a reminder today, current events today, a reminder of exactly what it says here. People, you today, you could uh, insert, uh, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been canceled from Facebook because of the word of God. Well, it's going to be kicked up a notch in the future tribulation period, and we already see it uh, moving in that direction today. It's getting much more serious than just being kicked off of social media because of the word of God, and it's only going to progress according to the scriptures. God is just, and so therefore his salvation and his punishment is eternal. Salvation is just because it's based on God. It's not based on you. It's not based on me. I don't have to worry about what you are doing and comparing myself to you or my uh, neighbor. You know, oh, well, I must be okay because I'm not doing what my neighbor's doing. No, that that's... <laughs> That is all irrelevant. You don't have to worry about him. He doesn't have to worry about you. You have to worry about your position with God. That is uh, salvation granted to you through faith. Jesus said, John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice that. There's no, there's no mention of works. Paul didn't invent the gospel of faith and can, wasn't the first one to condemn works. Jesus Christ said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And notice that he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life at the instant of belief. It's not believe and then have a crisis of conscience later in life and then really get saved. Uh, it's not do this, ten, this list of 10 do's and don'ts and maybe you'll make it in. No, this is a objective statement of fact from Christ. Again, black and white. There's no, there's no, there's no in-between here, there's no wondering whether you've done enough or wondering whether you're going to the right church or wondering whether or not you're in the right denomination. None of that has any role in salvation. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It is yours. You have it. You do not come into judgment. You has, it says, but has passed out of death, into life, perfect tense, has passed, uh, one-time action with ongoing consequences is what that means as we pass out of death into life by the very language itself doesn't mean that, oh, you've passed out of death today, but I know what you were thinking earlier, so back into death for you. That would violate this is one-time action. You believe in Christ, you pass from death into life. And that doesn't mean that life is over. 
of course. And now, oh, well, now I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about I live how I'm living because oh, now I have eternal life. No, God calls you to holy living after you have put your faith in him. You've moved from death into life. And now, well, you ought to be grateful. You ought to be living for him. And so since salvation can be given in such a just manner, there's nothing to wonder about. There's nothing to worry about when it comes to salvation. God's word is truth. His word says we have it through trust in Christ and what he did for us. Uh, It's very objective, very point blank, easy to follow. A five-year-old can understand that pretty pretty easily at times. Uh, That means that if you don't believe, then the punishment, it's right there for you. It's, It's in the Bible. It's cut and dry. You're either with the Lord through faith in Christ or you're not. And the punishment that goes along with the not side is very evident if we would just read the word. The punishment is just. Just as it uh, mentions in 14, 9 through 11. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it says, uh, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. And those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The punishment is eternal. Why? How could a loving God do that? I just read comments on an article or something, uh, or a video or something just this past week. How could a loving God possibly punish evil forever? Well, the answer to that question is because uh, God cannot possibly be in the presence of evil. We're created to live forever with him. He graciously offers to you freely salvation. You don't have to do anything, literally anything. In fact, you're to cease doing things and simply trust in what he did for you. And you can have eternal life or you can reject that, face the consequences of an eternal punishment. And that eternal punishment is your fault, not God's fault because it is based simply in belief. Again, you don't have to wonder whether or not you've done enough. You just simply have to understand what God's word says and whether or not you want to believe in what he has said. John 3, 36, he who believes in the son has eternal life. There it is again. He who believes has eternal life, not he who believes promises never to sin again, dedicates his life to the Lord, promises to be a missionary to Uganda when the opportunity arrives, uh, promises to keep the Ten Commandments, does to keep the Ten Commandments, uh, 
None, no, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. That translation is unfortunate. It's essentially the same word. It's a synonym for believe there. So it could easily say, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, just very black and white. Believe eternal life. Don't believe wrath, punishment, abides on you. So God is just. Hallelujah. God is just. I don't have to earn salvation from it. He gives it to me by his power and his glory through trust in what he has done for us. His judgments are true. They are, they are reality. They're not only in agreement with reality, they are reality and they're perfect. And so therefore his punishment is uh, just as well. And he ought to be praised for that. He is also worthy to be praised. Revelation 19, 4, it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. We have seen these individuals before, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. We won't take the time to go all the way <coughs> through that. Again, we came away with the conclusion that the 24 elders are most likely representative of the church in heaven uh, at this time during the tribulation period. Uh, just as a as a quick reminder, they're on thrones. They have white garments. They have golden crowns, and they're in heaven before the tribulation period begins. Well, man, that sort of matches up with Christians. They're on thrones. Revelation 5.10, speaking of believers, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Believer, you may find yourself in a situation where you're not really doing a lot of reigning <laughs> at this point in your life, but you will, according to Revelation 5.10, you will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years upon the earth. These uh, 24 elders have crowns. Paul mentions crowns quite a few times in his writings that are uh, rewards given to believers for faithful living for various reasons. Uh, he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As a believer, you have the promise of a crown waiting for you. The white garments, we've spent uh, time already this morning talking about the white garments that these 24 elders have, and believers have white garments representative of their righteous acts. And these uh, 24 elders are in heaven before the tribulation period begins. Revelation 3.10, promise to 
Uh, now the church escapes me. It should not. I have to go back and look. Uh, the church at Philadelphia, of course. Uh, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour, which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. We spent a whole lot of time studying that uh, verse, if you'll remember, uh, that these, the church at Philadelphia, along with the other churches, uh, according to the following verses, are given this promise of being kept from the hour of testing. That uh, Every time that phrase is used, it is a removal from. It's not a kept through. It is a kept from, taken from that this hour of testing, which is about to come upon the world. Uh, so these 24 elders, they very much fit the bill for the church. They're, they have exactly the same kind of adjectives, exactly the same kind of words describing them that are true of the church. And the four living creatures are uh, some kind of angelic being. And notice that they worship God. There is a great worship of God that is taking place here in verses 4 and 5, really the entire passage. It says that the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped there in verse 4. It's a, a phrase in the English, it's all one word in the Greek that that is typically translated as worshipped. For some reason, it, it includes the fall down. That's part of the etymology of the Greek term, falling down, worshipping, proskuneo. Uh, you may notice uh, prostrate is, is where we would get our English word from. And notice, notice the definition of the term there, worship. If ever there was a, a term, an idea that is misunderstood in Christianity today and over the past at least 20 years, it's this word worship. What exactly does that mean? And well, the BDAG, the um, most used Greek lexicon, has a wonderful, wonderful definition of the word worship to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence and submission to a high authority figure notice there's nothing there about a drum set or guitars or even singing for that matter is not uh, mentioned there in the definition to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence and submission to a high authority figure. That is what worship is. Worship isn't a break off section of the, the, the service time or the worship time uh, where we sing songs and, and raise our hands and this kind of of thing. Uh, no. Worship is expressing your complete dependence upon a higher authority figure. Most of the time it's used in the Bible, it's directed towards God. Other times this word is directed towards higher authority figures, uh, the Caesar, the king, this kinds of this kind of thing depends on the context, of course. Uh, how it is being used. 
Uh, nevertheless, it is recognizing in terms of God, recognizing that he is great and you are not. <laughs> he is your creator. You are the creature. He is without sin. You are not without sin. You are completely dependent upon him for, in this case, salvation. That is worship of God. It does not have to entail singing. It can entail uh, singing. It is an expression uh, uh, in attitude or gesture, primarily, is the primary definition. Recognizing that God is your superior. That is worship. And one wonderful way to worship God is to read His Word and apply it to your life. When we understand that God's word is truth and he's telling us to do certain things in his word, telling us to not do certain things in his word, like, I don't know, being immoral or these kinds of things, then that, and we conform ourselves to that, that is worship. That is recognizing that he is great and that you are submitting yourself to him. How do we how do we worship God now? Well, let's go to the Bible to find out. We we shouldn't go to the to the internet to uh, investigate what the latest big church is doing in order to worship God. We probably ought to go to the Bible. I would think Jesus tells us John four twenty two speaking to the woman at the well. You worship what you do not know. We, as in Jewish people, Jesus is saying here, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a, a couple of aspects that are interesting to this little phrase here, in spirit. There's kind of two ways to look at this, or two things that are being expressed here. Uh, and the first one is that you must be in the spirit to worship God. First step for being in the Spirit is to have the Spirit in you. And that happens at the moment that you trust in Christ. That's one of the many, several things that happen. The moment you believe in Christ, one of them is in the, this age, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The moment you trust in Christ, you, the Spirit is now in you, and you are now in the Spirit. Step one of worshiping God, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're doing something else other than worshiping God. You must be in the Spirit. The Spirit must be in you. The only way to have that is by believing in Christ. And furthermore, being in the Spirit, we know that it from our studies, that it's more than just being a believer. It's also being in fellowship with him. So we have to be 
in spirit by way of fellowship, walking by means of the spirit, these kinds of phrases that we've seen. Uh, Sin separates us not only from eternal life, but it also separates us from fellowship with him in this life. And so we have to confess those uh, sins to him. We've got to keep short accounts. We've got to communicate with him through prayer and through study of his word. We have to be familiar with who he is. It's the same way we maintain relationships with our with our loved ones, with our our husband or our wife. Uh, you communicate with them. Uh, you get to know one another. You know one another intimately. And when you do something wrong against that person, you confess. And then you still have fellowship with them. You're still married. If you sin against your husband or your wife, you're still married to that person, but the fellowship has an issue. So you deal with that problem. Then you have fellowship again. Very similar with our walk with the Lord, our walk in the Spirit with the Lord. Those issues have to be dealt with. Then we can have... Uh, be walking in the Spirit, then and only then can we truly worship Him. Also, uh, notice that we have to worship Him not only in Spirit, but in the truth. And God's Word is the truth. Therefore, true worship of God has to be based in His Word. We are sanctified by the truth, according to John 17, 17. That is the only way for us to be sanctified is in his word. And so therefore our worship must be based in his word. And primarily uh, that happens through the teaching of his word. There are a lot of good uh, songs out there that have uh, truth in them. We sang a couple of them this morning. The first one was very perfectly matched with Uh, our lesson this morning, totally by chance. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, there are an awful lot of songs that aren't perfectly in line with the truth. Even in our hymnal, we point them out from time to time. Well, this just isn't quite right. It, It isn't this. This is perfectly right. And that's why the worship of God is primarily in our worship service is spent studying his word, understanding who God is, who we are in light of that, and conforming ourselves to his image. That is the ultimate expression of worship. Uh, Admitting that you're wrong and doing something to correct it according to his word. That is is a perfect uh, expression of worship. Worship. So we worship him in spirit and in truth. And notice there's another aspect to this. There's praise. We have both worship and praise in this passage. Isn't it wonderful to to learn about these things and what they actually mean? Worship, submitting yourself to a higher authority. Praise, on the other hand, is mentioned here also, verse 5, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Praise is the Greek term, aineo, and here it is a present active imperative. It is a command. And the lo nida lexicon gives a great definition here. Notice what it says. To speak 
of the excellence of a person, object, or event. That is praise. First definition. To speak of the excellence of a person, object, or praise. So once again, that brings us right back to uh, in terms of a Sunday morning service, if you will, speaking praise, that's what we're doing right now. We're recognizing God and praising Him uh, in this. So obviously there are many ways to express yourself. You can express yourself in song. You can express yourself in your words. You can express yourself in writing things. All of those are methods of praise. It's just understand it's not just one thing. So again, we go back to kind of the misunderstanding of worship and praise in the church. Oh, we have our worship and praise time, and then we sit through the boring sermon, and then we go home. That's completely wrong. Worship and praise is throughout all aspects of the service. It doesn't say there's only one way to do it. In fact, expressing, speaking, usually usually means communicating through talking. But again, we can express uh, praise through any number of things. Art can praise God. Have you ever wondered why modern art is so weird and not art? Because they're expressing their opinion of the world and creation, and that, so it's disorderly, and you don't know what it is, and all you can't tell what it is. That is making a statement about this person's opinion of creation and God, whether they, whether they know it or not. So, on the other hand, we can praise God with the beautiful picture of His creation and some aspect of it, that can be a a method to praise God. In fact, our whole existence ought to be one of praising God. That's why we have this term here uh, that is used there in verse 5, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. That's a a polite way of saying slaves. The Greek term there is doulos, and it means slave. We are God's slaves as believers in him. And uh, this is something that is uh, very much looked down upon in modern society, the idea of slavery. We try to pretend like it's something of the past. It's been eradicated. Uh, In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been uh, on this planet in spite of uh, what we want to try to believe. But nevertheless, we are to be God's slaves. That's part of what makes human slavery so contemptible to us because it's our nature to be a slave to God, not to a a government or some other person. As believers, we are to be slaves to God. We are to be at His behest, ready to do and live and act for Him. Uh, Similar to the way that a slave is there for the purpose of his owner to do and act and live according to what he wants him to do. We are to be slaves to God. And that's why this praise is to be a part of who we are. It is to be a part of our nature. Everything that we say, move, and do ought to be for the Lord 
in praise because he is worthy. And notice also quickly that he reigns forever. Verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, our God the Almighty reigns. And it doesn't say forever, but the expression is there. He reigns. In other words, he reigns forever. The Lord God Almighty, this is a very interesting phrase that is seen in Revelation uh, a few times. The term Lord, Yahweh, he's eternal. That's what is wrapped up in that term Yahweh. It's the state of being verb, past, present, and future kind of combined together. He, he is. That's who God is. That's what is encapsulated in the term Lord. And he's also, not only is he Lord, but he's also God. He's the all-powerful ruler and creator of the universe, and he is almighty, literally all-powerful. All power is encapsulated in this person. I, you think of the most powerful thing you can possibly think of, a hydrogen bomb or whatever it is. Well, that's a teeny tiny picture of who God is. He's literally holding the entire universe together. And if he decides to not do that anymore, the whole thing goes up in a puff of smoke. He, this is the one that we are dealing with, the Lord God Almighty. And perhaps a better translation of that term reigns there is he has begun to reign. Uh, This is, again, looking forward to the future reign of Christ. Yes, there are aspects of his kingdom. His heavenly kingdom is eternal. It was in the past. It always has been. It is right now. It will be in the future forever. God isn't reigning on this earth today. Uh, If you don't believe me, just read the news. Uh, Go outside. (laughs) Talk to somebody. Look around. God isn't reigning over this earth today. He will one day. He's going to come again. He's going to establish his reign. This is looking forward to that time. He is uh, going to come to the earth in Revelation 19.11. The seventh bowl has already been poured out if we want to look at this chronologically in the book of Revelation. So he actually already is reigning. This is just kind of putting out the the various steps of the process for us. He has begun to reign because all of the wrath has been poured out on the earth. He is reigning over the earth at this point in time. It will take place in the future at the end of the tribulation, very much like Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's not a statement that that's happening right now, today, as we speak on January 8th, 2023, Christ is not reigning over this earth. He will in the future. That's what Revelation 11 is looking forward to, the future when he will reign over the earth. Revelation 19 here, same thing. He will rule over the earth in the future. It's not to take away from who Christ is or the fact that he is all-powerful and these sorts of things. 
when his reign comes to the earth, it will be evident. That's what he talks about in Matthew 24. The people will see the sign of the Son of Man coming. He will literally come back to the earth the same way that he left. His feet will literally be on the earth when he rules and reigns. That isn't happening today. It will be in the future. So we ought to praise the Lord. He has defeated Satan and his power over the world. That's what's representative, represented in the destruction of Babylon. Satan is defeated. His plan will not rule over this earth. Christ's plan will rule over the earth, and he will rule for eternity, like we saw in our call to worship this morning. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 97 speaks very similarly. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Psalm 97, looking forward to the time when Christ will come again to establish his rule and reign over this earth once and for all. And that is a reason to praise God. His judgments are perfectly just. We have salvation by faith in him. It is eternal. It is a one-time act. We simply trust in what he's done for us. That, that's justice. That's perfectly just. It doesn't rely on you or me or someone's opinion. It relies on, it relies on Christ and what he did for us. He should be praised for that. He should be praised because he is worthy. He's the creator. He is all-powerful. And he reigns forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that reveals so much about who you are and your plans for the future. And I just pray that these plans for the future would cause us to, to worship you and praise you with our lives, not just on Sunday morning, but every moment of the day. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us in this endeavor, that we would walk in fellowship with him and be under his moment-by-moment -moment guidance for us. We thank you for your word. Pray for each person here that we would be lights for you in this uh, week to come in this world that so desperately needs us to be that light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.